and welcome back to the Undercut Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jesse Billington, and I'm joined as always by the Modelo to my Mole and Timo Albus Daly and the Skull to my Feijoada, Ellie Mae Taylor. How are you both? The who to the what? Uh, Modelo, Mexican beer. Mole is sort of stewed chicken in Mexico, one of their national dishes. And Skull, Brazilian beer, Feijoada, uh, Brazil's national dish. It's sort of like a stewed uh, beef and pork with black beans. I do my research for this. Come on, you've got to hand it to me. How this are is you? tasty, I must say. I did feijoada and mole actually for Formula Food when I used to do all the old food cookery stuff way back. So uh, can attest. Mole, especially, I've always I've made that again since, and it always hits hard. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. How are you both? I would like to go to sleep. Tired, exhausted, busy Monday. Yeah. Yeah, just one of those days. Timo, how are you? Are you are you at least awake? You seem to be coming to us from the darkness, but I don't know what the darkness is about. The lighting is much better on light, I promise you, but it just doesn't translate for whatever reason. But I'm I'm perfectly anything you very much he assures us the lighting is better, but also his audio sounds like Darth Vader having a stroke. But it doesn't particularly matter because we are joined by um podcast regular, friend of the show, Jacob Phillips. How are you? Thank you very much for having me back, guys. Yeah, it's great to be back again. And Jesse, you've made me very, very hungry at the thought of Feijoada there. So uh, thanks for that. I have to go and get the oven on and uh, start cooking down some lovely uh, pork chops and uh, black beans uh, for to enjoy after the show. Um, but in the meantime, we've got plenty of action to look back on. When I say plenty of action. We have some action to look back on from the Mexican Grand Prix. So we'll take a look back at some of the news that's come out of the world of Formula One and then dive into our race recap. And one of the big things that's happened in uh, sort of the news recently was Marta Garcia heading to Freca in 2024. The Spanish driver will receive a fully funded Freca seat with Prema, and Freca will also grant its top teams, which is interesting wording, a season-long fourth entry if they sign a driver who finishes P1, P2, or P3 in the F1 Academy standings. So there's potential for Lina Bula here, who ages out of F1 Academy ahead of next season. And in addition to supporting its inaugural winner of Freca, F1 Academy is also reducing the driver contribution from 150 grand to 100 grand for the 2024 season. As for Marta, it feels more like a sideways step than a step up, and I would have preferred to see her in Formula 3. But as I said, the silver lining here is that Lina Bula and potentially Hamdra Okabezi could join her in Freca as per the new agreement, thus opening up more seats for new F1 Academy drivers. What are your thoughts on all of this? It's a bit of a sideways step. Freca is very equivalent to Formula 4, which is also in its own way very equivalent to F1 Academy. But crucially, making this move over, it is a bigger series. It is a little more internationally recognised, certainly within sort of the talent pools picking for Formula 3. We've recently seen someone skip Formula 3 entirely. Um, Andrea Kimi Antonelli, of course, jumping straight from Freca up to F2. So there is recognition of the talent that moves through this series. And equally, it's important to remember that F1 Academy and Pirelli are also sort of backing this. So there is backing and sponsorship from two major motorsports organisations that are ensuring these seats are being made available to the talent the series has produced. So I think at the end of the day, if the seat's being made available, the funding is being there and the support is being given to really ensure this very much grassroots option is working and getting talent to the appropriate seats. I think that what we're seeing is by far and away a lot better than what we saw with W Series years back, which was just sort of, well done. We'll maybe give you some money for that. We'll sort that out down the line. Um, fancy doing it again? Yeah, 
obviously F1 Academy is still in its early stages. There's a lot still to be ironed out in teams in terms of pathways for females after they sort of compete in the academy. But, you know, is this now going to mean F1 Academy winners are more likely to step into Frecker than Formula 3? Obviously, like you said, Antonelli is moving from Frecker to F2, so it's still a viable option to moving up the ladder, but it doesn't seem kind of quite as straightforward path that we all maybe thought it would end up being and in terms of sort of that fourth entry for um any team signing an f1 academy driver it's that for me kind of seemed a bit weird it kind of seems like they're almost saying a female driver is sort of almost less than their male counterpart so they have to compensate by giving the team an extra seat i don't know i thought that was a bit weird yeah i'm quite um i'm quite glass half full of this really sort of echoing what what jesse said uh, the cars i think in in Freco are very similar to the cars we'll see in the f1 academy the sort of formula four standard and i do think like jesse said it's a bit of a sideways step really and i did hope we'd see a linear path from f1 academy up to f3 and you know garcia has been around quite a long time now around in the w series as well and we know what she can do so it's a real shame that some team in formula three there's 30 seats for a reason you know to try and get some drivers obviously up the ladder and it's a real shame that no one's taken a punt and i really hope that it's sort of a one season and done up to f3 for her but you know that remains to be seen i think equally we've got the same teams in freca that we have in F1 Academy in Formula 3, Formula 2. So there is this sort of fluidity between the lot of them. You've got your Van Amersports, Prima, MP Motorsports. They're all kicking around. So there is hopefully going to be this conversation between teams and outfits, understanding where the talent lies and who are the people to look out for. But I mean, if you look at the Frecker running this year, there was one female driver in it running with um, Kick Motorsport. It was Maya Wieg, I think is the Ferrari junior driver, Dutch driver. And um, I don't know how her season went, actually. Checks and notes. Do, 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 do. Um, 17th, so not bad, um, but could have been a lot better. I think it was quite midfield, but also it was her first year running in the series. So, um, yeah, mixed bag on that front. But it's a step in a direction, and it's crucially not a step backwards. And equally, we're seeing drivers being offered opportunities within motorsport in the case of, I want to say, Megan Jilks, the Canadian, who is going off to Aston Martin um, as sort of an engineering and sort of, not directorial role, but sort of she's got a role within Aston Martin Racing, not necessarily as a driver. She wants to pursue more of an engineering side. So the opportunities are coming and the talent is being recognised. I think it will take time for that whole process to start trickling upstream, as it were. But it's it's a good start we're off to. And equally, in other feeder series and junior driver news... No, just... One more point, go on. Yeah, I was just wondering, what's the um, sort of entry money difference between like how much do you have to pay to be in Frecker in comparison to Formula 3? Do we think this is perhaps a financial issue? Or sort of funding... F3 is more expensive. I'm not 100% sure how much, but I think it's a decent chunk. And I think that's probably why they've brought Frecker down for any F1 Academy drivers to similar to what it would be to get into F1 Academy there so that they can move between the two of them a little easier. And then potentially, if you do great in both of them, it should help you raise the difference in funds that you'll need to get into F3 until they 
figure out how to make that less, I suppose. Um, so Freca, it is, I think it's a few hundred thousand to get into. I think it's 150,000, which is what they've promised Garcia for her win this year. They're dialing that back to 100,000 next year, but I think Pirelli are chipping in some additional costs. So it will, in a sense, be a fully funded seat. So Freca is about 150,000 to get into. Um F4 is about 150,000 and an F3 seat starts at about 600,000. There is a big jump, but usually by the time you're getting into Formula 3, you've got sponsorship, you've got teams aware of you, you've got other positions that are helping sort of bankroll that move. So I think crucially this Freca move is valuable for getting these signings for sort of sponsorship awareness and so on and so forth, moving from there and then probably not going into Formula 4 after that, going into Formula 3 following on from it. So we'll see how Garcia does this year. And equally, if there are any other drivers that make the move as to what impact are made there. And equally, we've already got Maya Wig in the series. Be great to see how she balances out against them, whether the two talent pathways provide drivers of different skill levels or different approaches to the series. But um, yeah, Rov, I'll go back to the point that I'm sort of abandoned to give Ellie May the final word. Um, Luke Browning has completed his Aston Martin test at Silverstone. Browning won the British Racing Drivers Club Young Driver of the Year Award and with it a test at Silverstone with the Silverstone-based outfit of Aston Martin. Luke covered some 240 kilometres in the testing session in AMR 21. Uh, He quoted, uh, it was a little boy's dream come true and it was just as fast as anyone might think it could be. Absolutely ballistic. The power, brakes and high-speed downforce were just incredible. I'm truly lost for words. Although I knew this day was coming, it didn't sink in until I walked into the garage and saw the Aston Martin F1 car there with my name on the halo. And that has to be a fairly immense moment to walk into a garage and see an Aston Martin or a F1 car with your name on the halo. That is certainly something. Browning won the test uh, along with a cash prize of £200,000, full British Racing Drivers Club membership and a nice Arai helmet and Jordan bespoke personalised helmet bag after beating three pre-selected rivals in a two-day assessment at Silver stone last year in various machinery including a gt car so this is run by the british racing drivers club and this pits drivers against one another in a variety of different classes of cars so it is very much looking for a all-round strong racing driver not just a formula one driver but it does have its perks because it's sort of backed by aston martin hence the drive um browning has just enjoyed a very good introductory season to formula three earning a podium in the sprint race at catalonia and coming 15th out of a field of 35 drivers and outperforming his teammate sebastian montoya at high tech so he's got form and i think hopefully this will have sort of buoyed his enthusiasm and equally given him a little bit more sort of awareness uh, on the sort of greater stage when it comes to major teams picking drivers yeah, it'll be interesting to see how he does in 2024, and it's always get good to get a taste of Formula 1. There's not too much else to say there just yet. Like you say, he did decently in Formula 3, but again, that could fluctuate pretty quickly from one year to the next. It's very early days, but it's, again, it's encouraging to see, and it's it's nice to see Aston Martin giving yet another driver a go in their car. So even if not a lot of them end up joining Aston Martin down the road, at least they can give them their, their 15 minutes to showcase what they've got, and then maybe someone else thinks oh yeah i'd like to poach them for for my driver academy or something over here and we'll stick you in in our formula three or formula two team instead yeah equally the the membership as part of the brdc gives him access to other members within the club and people that will know people at teams it's that connections thing of being welcomed into a sort of higher echelon of the racing community and yeah, it's, at that point, it's not necessarily how quick you drive, but equally, in, along with many things in life, it is very much a case of it's what you know not or who you know, not necessarily what you know. Um, 
in a slightly different branch of racing. We've obviously talked about tyre suppliers through Formula One, but another racing series has picked up Goodyear as a tyre provider. Yes, uh, Masters Historic, which is a fantastic little classic racing series spanning Europe and America. Uh, they've announced that Goodyear will be their long-term tyre supplier, building upon their long-standing relationship with Goodyear-owned Dunlop and Avon brands. Good long, uh, Goodyear will supply both Masters Endurance Legends, which is your prototypes and GTs that raced between 1995 and 2016 in Le Mans and, and its feeder series, and also Masters GT Trophy, which is your GT4s, Cup and Challenge cars that race between 2007 and 2018 from the beginning of next year, manufacturing them alongside Goodyear's current WEC and European Le Mans series tyres to ensure that classic endurance and GT series benefit from the same consistency, performance and durability. They'll also be supplying Masters Racing Legends, which is your three-litre Cosworth V8 engine cars from 1966 to 1985, gradually replacing the Avon tyres and their existing Dunlop tyre range from uh, for the pre-66 GT and touring cars will also be expanded to allow for more authentic aesthetic and performance. Yeah, the big backing from Goodyear, I think, is certainly a step forwards in maintaining historic motorsports and equally maintaining the cars that people have sort of seen on TV screens growing up and can still get to enjoy watching going around. So it's it's a very different thing, but I know Ellie May and I enjoy sort of watching our classic racing and knowing that there is a solid tyre provider that's backing it. And equally, the effort and research that Goodyear are pouring into this is ultimately going to be great for their brand it's going to be great for their understanding of tires and sort of producing new and different tires across the realms and i think is possibly going to i don't want to say it's going to put the wind up pirelli but it's going to give them a hell of a lot of data should they decide to launch another sort of campaign to get into formula one they're going to go look guys we're making tires for pretty much every goddamn speck of racing car there is to go about modern or ancient um if you want some tyres that you know are going to live up to the pressures of either a 1,000 horsepower Cosworth DFVs, Peugeot 90X hybrids, or a modern F1 car, we can do that. And yeah, it's all the merrier for them and all the better for us because we'll get to see classic racing for years to come. Speaking of classic cars, I'll quickly dip into something that Ellie May and I reported on in the preview to the Mexico Grand Prix, and that is Lando Norris's Fiat Jolly is still up for sale. The auction is still running on at the time of recording. Um, I think the auction ends in checks notes 24 hours time, 22 hours and 53 minutes. And it is currently a bid of 15,000 pounds is 1972 Fiat Jolly with uh, 36,539 kilometers on the odometer. But uh, nice little car hasn't hit its reserve yet. So you could still get away with a pretty much a steal. I think this is going to be way below market value if it uh, does sell for anywhere close to even 20. So um, if you want some F1 merch and really fancy blowing the budget, this is the one to go for. What is it reserve? Um, they don't tend to let you know what the reserve is. It's always, it's always a hidden factor. They give you an estimate, which is very different. That's simply what they expect it to fetch. Um, the reserve is simply the minimum budget that they will allow the car to sell for. And um, we don't know what that is just yet. Um, likely won't, unless we ask. Um, so, Moving away from classic cars and classic car auctions, back to motorsport and another series that wrapped up this weekend, and that was, of course, Super Formula. Um, Lawson, Liam Lawson, the uh, ever-favourite Alpha Tower driver, has managed to bag P2 in the standings by season's end. A huge shunt red flag the first race after two cars came together in 130R, one car splitting in half and clearing the catch fence and landing sort of lower down in the circuit towards Degna 1. It was a 
enormous shunt. Um, however, if you watch the footage of it, you'll be amazed to know that the two drivers involved walked away, one with what was simply reported as concussion. They went to the medical office, both were signed off, one with obviously a bit of concussion, which has to be taken seriously. But the fact that that level of safety can be brought into a series that is damn near as high speed as Formula One and has a shunt that is that massive proves that certainly the safety and procedures at Suzuka are worthwhile major series racing there because they clearly know what they're doing. But equally, Super Formulas want to keep an eye on. The second race saw Liam Lawson battle hard, but failed to close the points gap to the lead. So Rotomo Miata took the title by just eight points. However, Liam Lawson did pick up the title of Rookie of the Year. So not all bad for him. But again, we've seen some promising signs from him in Formula One, and there's a lot of utterance about him making an appearance in 2025. So we'll see what happens there. But moving on from that, we'll delve into the Mexican Grand Prix and we'll start with the practice sessions where, again, we ran a prototype tyre in FP1, as well as having five rookies on the grid. Isaac Hajar in Alpha Tauri in place of Yuki Tsunoda, Teo Porcher replaced Bottas for Alfa Romeo, Jack Dewan was in for Gaslia Alpine, and Fred Vesti was in for in at Mercedes for George Russell, while taking Magnussen's spot in the Haas was Oli Behrman. Who stood out to you guys in the FP1 drives? Who of the rookies really shone for you? I think it's kind of going to be Oli Behrman because I'm pretty sure he was the driver ahead of Alonso and I know it was only practice but and Alonso did have a terrible weekend overall but that's still not too bad for your first F1 practice outing to be ahead of a two-time world champion who has been on the podium multiple times this year everyone else did okay I mean I think Porchero is the obvious loser from that not really his fault um, but yeah Behrman is going to be my easy answer seeing as no one else went for that Oli Behrman was almost matching Nico Hulkenberg, wasn't he, in the Haas, which is pretty damn impressive. Yeah, really impressive. I think he certainly took a lot away from that um, test he did over at Mugello. Not Mugello. Um, Marinello? Pura- Marinello, that's the one. Um and sort of really walked away from that with a lot of knowledge on how to manhandle these sort of big old F1 cars and put it to the t- put it to use when he was out in that house. So it was really quite impressive there. Um, Jacob, who was your standout junior driver? I must admit, I didn't watch FP1, so I can't exactly remember the times, but I do remember um, it's a real shame for Porsche, who never really got any running, so that's a shame. But what I will say is, you know, step away from the times for a second, it's impressive that, you know, all of these drivers, I believe, got through the session without any major incidents. It was, I think, Hajar's first ever time in an F1 car. And th- these are the real sort of crucial moments that will sort of get them on the, on, on the pathway, really. So it was impressive to see them step in in what is, you know, very different machinery to F1. You know, more power, more speed. And Mexico is not the easiest track to navigate as well. So, yeah, I was impressed with them. Um, just impressed with the general performance of the drivers, really. Mm. For me, it it was really Isaac Hadjar, who was sort of a left-field choice, I think, for Alpha Tauri to put into that seat, but didn't really seem out of place once he was in it and seemed at home running out there, understood exactly what he was up to, and yeah, just seemed quite natural. Wasn't necessarily fast, but I think it takes time to get up to it. I don't think he's had any sort of previous private tests, but to be able to sort of hop in and look comfortable, I think is um, a good measure, at least. Um, Moving on from the practice sessions to qualifying, where Norris suffered through qualifying, unable to get a time down, and a lot of drivers playing silly buggers holding up the field in pit exit with no warnings handed down from the stewards, which does seem to be setting a nasty precedent. We've seen this before, most notably back in 2007, with um, obviously Alonso holding up Hamilton in the pit lane, 
this has now sort of weirdly started resurging and I think it's come in with the sort of introduction of this whole sort of maximum lap time thing where you can't dawdle on a cooldown lap or an out lap. So drivers are weirdly messing around with it, trying to find gaps by simply waiting at pit exit and it's causing traffic to build up there. Do we think this is going to get out of hand and cause a major issue sometime down the line? Uh, yes, I do believe we believe it will. Um, and this is the thing with the stewards, isn't it? We get a different team of stewards every week and there's real lack of consistency sometimes. I think their wording was, when I checked through sort of the press documents from the stewards, that it was better that it happened, sort of the backing up happened in the pit lane rather than the dangerous last sector, which is a very dangerous precedent set because as we know, the pit lane, as you mentioned there, Jesse, with Hamilton and Alonso, and there's obviously tyre changes, there's people walking across the pit lane, camera staff, whatever else. It's a very, very packed and busy pit lane so I, I think it just needs to be stamped out and when, when a driver's ready to go the green light's on when you leave your pit box and leave your garage you are essentially going to undertake a qualifying lap so I don't I don't I, don't, I think the stewards should stamp it out immediately to be honest mm-hmm. I, I guess kind of understand where they're coming from um I guess you'd rather see them in the pit line I guess waiting and rather than drivers fighting on track for position and potentially maybe hindering a driver on a fast lap, which could ultimately lead to bigger repercussions with sort of them crashing or whatnot. Do we want to see drivers queuing in the pit lane? Ultimately, no. Is it kind of the lesser of two evils at the minute? Maybe, but I guess it depends where we go from here. If it then starts creating the issues of, drivers can no longer put in representative lap times, then the FIA are going to have to do more about it and they're probably going to have to be a bit more proactive than just saying, well, I guess they don't know what to do at the minute is the issue which, here. Which really sums the stewards up, to be honest, recently. <laughs> Yeah, it's very much a case of don't do that. Well, what am I supposed to do? We haven't figured that part out yet, but don't do what you're currently doing. They're like, great, that is not at all clear. It's mm, it's, it's, a, it's a strange one. And I think there's certainly something to be said for the continuity of the stewards. I think there has to be a core stewarding team. I appreciate cycling through people stops there being sort of um, judgment or bias coming into the team. But equally, at the same time, you want a relatively regular team that's able to produce and understand and enforce the rules the same way over and over again because we don't seem to be getting that this season and it seems to be so far thankfully hasn't had a major impact in anything but there is every chance that it could at some point down the line i think it'd be better to stamp that out before we run into any major problems Regardless of the pit lane problems, Albon's practice pace failed to materialise in qualifying, but both Alphas had a good turn of pace, though that didn't really last for them. Come the race, Yuki Tsunoda started from the back after taking a new engine, and Max had a new exhaust system, but it wasn't worth a penalty as it came from his existing pool of parts. All teams were running new cooling setups in place to sort of deal with the unique conditions of Mexico, something that we mentioned in the preview episode. And Stroll, however, would end up starting from the pit lane after taking a bevy of new elements. While Logan Sargent failed to set a lap during qualifying, he was allowed entry to the race based on his practice times, though he was hit with a 10-place grid penalty for overtaking under yellows, which was was just such nonsense, really, because the panels in front of him were clearly green and there was nothing going on there. So it's annoying that he got hit with that, but more annoying that he's also been awarded penalty points for that and is now up to a total of six. 
Well, going back to Alban, I think it's really interesting to see how Mexico showed just how sensitive these cars really can be. You know, different greenness in track, slightly warmer weather, completely changed how some of the cars really performed. You know, we just said with Albert, he looked like a king in free practice and he was suddenly then struggling in qualifying. And it was a, he was saying how it was a completely different car to drive from the one that he had been driving in free practice. I think that's quite, quite interesting, really. We sometimes don't see or sort of appreciate just how sensitive these cars can be to like the slightest of change. No, exactly. It was very similar to what we saw with Ferrari as well. You know, after FP3, there was no way that I thought that Ferrari would be on pole and then we'd end up with a one-two and it's about nailing that lap at the right time. I know it's a cliche, you know, about na nailing laps at the right time and that sort of thing, but I think Mexico is a track whereby maybe the racing's not as good. I think it might have been helped yesterday by a red flag, which we'll come on to in a minute, but... I think qualifying certainly is more interesting around it because, you know, with the um, the high altitude, the um, thinner air and that sort of thing, it can really can really dictate and sort of mix up the grid, which is interesting. So, yeah, it's very interesting to see how sensitive the cars are. And it was a shame for Albon, really, wasn't it? You know, there was me thinking he could have a, a front row start, but yeah, real shame. Yeah, I think the temperature setups through the weekend really impacted a few of the cars. We certainly saw the Williams coming alive in different temperature ranges to the other cars. But at the end of the day, weren't able to pull it together in qualifying, though come the actual race once the green lights went out. It was a very different story. Max took 10 seconds, uh, took all of 10 seconds really to take the lead come Sunday, sending it to the inside of a bad starting Leclerc and holding on to it. Checo formed the second slice of bread on the Leclerc sandwich and turned in too early on the Monegasque driver, coming off worse and bouncing into the runoff at turn one. His race over there after barely 800 metres. Leclerc ran on through the opening stint, his front wing eventually shedding the broken end plate. His pace was strong and enough to keep Hamilton at bay. Weirdly enough, once they replaced that wing, he seemed to lose the pace, actually. So I'm not entirely certain what's up with the balance on that Ferrari. I kind of have the same sentiments in that I found it interesting how well Leclerc could manage with a damaged wing. And if you were Ferrari, would you would you maybe question the aerodynamics of the front wing and how efficient it maybe is? I mean... It could be the case that because it's Mexico, the air is thin due to its altitude and you, you don't need such an aerodynamic car to get around the circuit and be successful. But, you know, your downfall, downfall still needs to be at its highest to get around this circuit um, due to the thinness of the air. And Sainz was never on the back of Leclerc. Yes, Sainz was maybe playing the long game, and but you would think really that Sainz would be quicker in an intact Ferrari and they'd let him pass but he was just never fighting him I mean it could just be the unique conditions of Mexico but I do I do think well. it might be something to do with the um conditions in Mexico we have seen throughout the years I think we've been coming here since 2015 and I was watching some old um, clips of previous races earlier and yesterday before the race as well the gaps do seem to be very very big I know Max pulled a, a massive gap out as well but you know that's to be expected with Max in 2023 but the gaps between the other sort of top teams as well Ferrari had a you know nice um, oh, so Hamilton sorry, had a nice gap over Leclerc and then Sainz couldn't really follow in it, it was helped like I said by the red flag but I do think that we find following's one thing passing's another but I think we even find following very hard in Mexico I just don't you know I think because of the high altitude they can go faster down the straights with the DRS you know the closing speed is, is a lot different there's less braking zone if you like so I do think 
that maybe it isn't Sainz's fault. I think on his day, we know what Sainz can do. I think it might be, as you say, only made down to um, the uh, conditions of Mexico and the track itself. Equally, it could just be Charles has a more preferable sort of driving style that involves a slightly looser front end. So with that weakened wing and a slightly different balance down the car, it falls more into his hands. Perhaps the natural setup of that car favours perhaps more science or just doesn't really favour either of them. Certainly in Mexico, it didn't seem to in its standard setup, apart from in qualifying. But regardless, um, Verstappen pitted early after a VSC, which was flown to collect some debris. And it was pretty much a bold call to make the hards go that long because they'd only really done a lap less the previous year with Sebastian Vettel and Aston Martin. So it was a big ask to get the hards to go that far. But equally... I don't think Max was really going to be pushing those tyres to the limit the entire way through that race. So so you say it was a bold call as well, but considering the championships are both wrapped up at this point for Red Bull, they can afford to take these kind of risks occasionally now just to see what kind of data they can get from it, which might be applicable next year or whenever really. And it's just maybe a bit of a fact-finding mission and also the fact that if anyone could do it at the moment, it's probably Max. Annoyingly, I have literally just made a note of the lap maybe prior or on the lap that Kevin Magnussen crashed, causing the red flag, that Verstappen was actually 16 seconds already ahead of Leclerc in second. So, was it Leclerc in second? Yes. Yeah, at that point it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think by the end of the race, he probably would have had, or near the end of the race, he may have had a free pit stop if they thought the tyres were an issue and that they needed to pit him. Yeah, it was very much sort of a dominant drive and one that was almost in a good way data collecting for Red Bull. Um, however, it didn't really pan out that way because um, Magnussen's rear toe link failed on the left-hand rear wheel and um, essentially spat him off through the S's and into the barriers with the rear brakes catching fire post-crash. A red flag period was utilised to fix the barriers and clear away the debris and the foam from the fire extinguishers. Restarting on the hards was a bold call for the Ferraris, and ultimately they didn't have the pace to fight a field that had swapped back to mediums. Uh, Piastri and Sonoda would then come together after the restart, Piastri defending the inside line into Turn 1, and Yuki trying it around the outside but suffering a Perez and turning in too early going around. He recovered it well and set off after the pack, and we'll get back to Sonoda later because I think he had quite a good weekend, all things considered. Ocon and Gasly would swap positions to allow the number 31 car a fight with Hülkenberg up ahead. Ocon eventually making it past, despite a very bolshy radio call, which is quite funny. The Haas resorting to Typhoon, eventually chewing through its tyres by the end and tumbling down the order. Prior to that, Hülkenberg had been having a fairly all right drive. It seems like the upgrades to that Haas get it somewhere, but not entirely all the way through a race. Alonso would retire with damage sustained by debris, and Lance would also retire after a spin from Bottas in the baseball arena. The majority of the race was just Lando blasting through the field. Danny Rick would catch George by the final few laps, though shoddy TV direction made it tricky to ascertain how close he got to the Brit. Though if you can find the onboards, it was remarkable how many times that if he'd really sent it, Danny Rick might have stood a chance, but equally didn't really want to run the risk of doing a sort of Matty Cesaris in Austin and just sort of plowing up the inside of another car. The majority of the race, though, um, sort of flew by really and eventually Verstappen took the flag with a big lead over Hamilton and Leclerc rounded out the podium. It's probably the most frustrating TV thing for them to do to cut away from the Ricardo battle since that whole Lance Stroll business in Monaco a couple of years ago. It's like, why are we cutting away now? We really want to watch this. I know it's Max coming over the line, but we know he's, we've seen him win so many races this year. Can we focus with a bit of interesting racing going on? It was really frustrating to, to miss that. 
I'd yeah. just call it unfortunate timing, perhaps, because they're always going to pan to the winner crossing the line. It's just, oh, no, it's just frustrating. Do I think it is just unfortunate timing that they decided to battle it out in the last few laps. I think they got lucky at the end because that overtake didn't happen. So we didn't get yet another overtake that was just a replay. But yeah, I think you could have easily had the footage of Max crossing the line, the fireworks delayed a little bit and simply sort of stuck with an onboard or at least... I've not seen them put the... They used to have a little box on the, the side when they were looking at, on, on the, the list of drivers down the, the left-hand side. They'd have a little box looking at some racing thing. I don't know why they didn't do that for one or the other on that case as well. A forward-looking onboard from Danny Rick in the timing tower would have just given us that additional bit of coverage. But it, as a race weekend, it just felt a bit flat and a bit paint by numbers, bar potentially Magnussen's crash. But even then, that didn't really liven things up. But um, It excited it a lot more than it would have been, I think, had it been had it not happened. Because otherwise, I think, like you were saying earlier, they may... Verstappen would have just had a pit stop in hand if he needed it so there would have never been any real jeopardy there and would have only just had Hamilton closing down on Leclerc anyway because I think he would have gone in that regardless so not much else would have potentially happened whereas bunching them back up at least gave us an opportunity for it and I think we probably got a little bit more of an interesting thing there just from the fact that the gaps couldn't open up any more than what they were already doing. Yeah, I think Magnussen's crash certainly sort of spiced things up. But we'll move on from the race rundown to our winners and spinners section. And we'll we'll let the guest go first, I feel. Jacob, your winner, please. I have gone for, it might be quite an obvious choice really, but I'm super, super happy for him. And he's sort of sparking a few rumours now, which are doing the rounds, but I've gone for Daniel Ricciardo and it's you know an absolute timely drive. He's been off quite a while, obviously with his wrist injury, he came back in the USA and had a sort of okay weekend there, but he sort of really showed, you know, why he is, you know, the driver he, you know, why he carries that reputation around with him. It was actually, I think last year in Mexico as well, he had a very similar drive and I think he was in P7 there. And then, you know, last season he wasn't that good, but that was his stand-up drive. This is certainly a stand-up drive in his, in his comeback. Um, obviously with Perez having his incident at the start, there are going to be questions asked about that future Red Bull seat for 2024 and beyond. So he sort of put himself very firmly in that shop window and um, there's going to be a few questions to be answered behind the scenes, I think, for Helmut Marco. Ellie May, have you got anything else to sort of throw into that one? Because I know you've picked a similar winner, or very much yeah. the same winner, rather. I've 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 agreed with um, Jacob. I've gone for Daniel Ricciardo as well. It was just a sensational, sensational weekend for him. You know, brilliant qualifying session. You know, Yuki was giving Daniel the toe in Q1 and Q2 to sort of help him get into Q3. But I'm not sure he even really needed it because then he obviously qualified fourth above a Red Bull, both McLaren, both Mercedes. And I honestly didn't think he'd be able to hold his own during the race, as even at the start, the car just looked that much slower than those around him. But it was kind of like seeing the old Ricardo back, we we sort of know and love. And he got the absolute maximum out of that AlphaTauri. And no one really had it easy when trying to overtake him either. I don't. I think he may have been helped by the fact that Oscar, who was behind him, had to constantly defend his positions. He didn't quite have anyone on his back sort of a lot of the time unless it was sort of Lewis Hamilton or Lando Norris but to be fighting Mercedes at the end as well incredible it was kind of a weird thing watching him with Lewis there being conflicted of like being an obvious Hamilton fan like he's going to get past at some point but it's just weird that it's taking that long to do it and kind of like you're saying it's nice seeing that Ricardo of old and very much proving that you can have a duff car but it's 
it really matters in that case who's in the car and you get to really see the caliber of the driver and like you say i'm glad we got to see that daniel rather than the daniel that we saw towards the end of last year and just a lot of last year in general so it's nice that maybe this is him getting his confidence back a bit and i was kind of a nice predicament to be in like oh i don't know who i want to do well here can't they both just do nicely and luckily they did but for kind of the maximum in their own ways for that I don't think it's so much the Alpha Tauri was a duff car this weekend because again I don't know sort of oh no just generally all season as a duff car in comparison to the rest of the competition it's it's come alive in the final few rounds of its upgrades and tweaks but yeah it, it's it's interesting seeing how Danny's been able to manage it this weekend and equally at one point it was you could see that he was driving with sort of his pinky finger and his ring finger slightly raised off the wheel he's still not putting a full stress load through that sort of lower half of his hand it's you know if you watch back any of the replays and i think he he made a point of when he was chatting with lando norris in the interview pen about it he's lando norris sort of pointed out that he was sort of driving along like a posh guy with a cup of tea it was sort of fingers out and sort of not quite gripping the wheel with an entire hand so it's an impressive feat nonetheless um timo i'm interested in your winner oh <laughs> We know why. <laughs> it's purely, it's it's Valtteri Bottas purely for the reason of the manner in which he punted off Stroll. It was just so amusing. It was kind of, it was weird because it was almost respectable, the move that Stroll did, because you don't see many overtakes in Formula 1 in that part of the circuit. You see a bit more in Formula E, but you very much don't see in Formula 1. And it was just Bottas's just reaction of, nope, I'm just going to boop you right out of the way as soon as you try that and just spin you off into the distance and uh, nope, goodbye, I'm going to continue on. So just for pure amusement purposes, he gets my winning vote this week. Yeah, I mean, credit to Lance for trying it, but ultimately it really wasn't going to come off there and I don't think Valtteri was going to let it happen. So there's some comedy value for Bottas for sort of defending that one quite so sort of bluntly and finishly as he did. Um, I've got to say my winner though has to be Lando Norris because that was an almighty drive from way down in the field right up to the top. And yeah, I think had it not been for that badly timed red flag and he got a better start off the second start, he would have been absolutely well up into that top five. And especially when you compare that to the relatively mediocre but nothing sort of painful performance from Piastri, this is all of a sudden Norris, again, really showing his true racing form. And yeah, it was it was a good weekend to be a Lando Norris fan, even if Saturday was a bit rough. Sunday was a fantastic day to just watch some sublime racecraft from a guy that knows exactly what the chassis under him is doing and how it's going to react into every corner he sent it into. His charge against George Russell was absolutely perfect. And he sort of spent a lap or two watching, seeing where George was defending, charging up his own battery, getting ready to make the move and knowing that if he did it, sort of going through that sort of into the middle sector, it was going to be harder for George to really start coming back at him. So it was really wise from Lando and a drive befitting of someone that really should be getting on for a win sometime soon. It's just fate seems to always get in the way for the poor boy. Meanwhile, in the spinners section, I'm going to start with Ellie May. I've gone for Haas because they're now at the bottom of the team standings with, I don't think, any real feasible way to leave that bottom step. Hulkenberg obviously wasn't in a bad position. He was in the points for a lot of the race. That has just cooks its tyres and they can't stay up there. I'm now kind of wondering how long Gene will keep this team running for. You've got prospect teams knocking on the door, wanting to enter F1 with no luck. It wouldn't surprise me if they turn up to Haas and give them a proposal to sort of buy Gene out. Yeah, it's. I think time is tight for Haas at this point in time and 
they've got to start showing some promise uh, before someone else comes in. There's all sorts of rumours fluttering around the paddock at the moment about potentially Audi pulling out of the Sauber bid and other manufacturers making a move into it, whether or not that actually happens or whether or not a manufacturer comes in and buys out Haas with the promise of actually doing something with that very respectable sort of 10th place in the field, something that might be sort of very valuable should all of a sudden Andretti get turned away. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of unused promise there. And bear in mind, at the end of their first season in the sport, they finished fifth and now they're unable to even fight for ninth. Unless, well, this new upgrade was obviously meant to make them perhaps cook their tyres a little less. And whilst it may have made some improvement, it hasn't made enough improvement because Hulkenberg just fell down the order near the end. Yeah. You know, Hulkenberg hasn't had points now if you exclude the sprint since Australia. I think the sooner Gene Haas sells that team, the better, because for me, they show the least amount of ambition of any of the t- 10 teams on the grid, and they have done for quite a long time now. So uh, they've got a long way to go, I think, before we can start considering themselves back up to the heady heights of 2018 when they finished fifth. Mm. No. I'll go for my spinner quickly, and it's a fairly obvious one of Aston Martin. They have gone from having an absolute rocket ship of a car that Alonso was sort of putting on the podium each weekend. We got to Spain where we said, where he said there wouldn't be a weekend where he wasn't on the podium from there on out. He was threatening wins and nothing's happened. And the car has slowly gotten worse and worse and worse. And while it's now been overtaken by McLaren, unless we have some really good races from Alpine, they've got a bit of a sigh of relief at the moment, but it's still not sort of clear to the end for the team. Um, so yeah, it's just a, a pretty shocking weekend for uh, Aston Martin with one re- retiring with damage and the other retiring just simply because he got spun out. It's it's not what you want to see. You say slowly sort of falling off there down the order, Jesse, but I, I can't remember a, a fall off that dramatic. I mean, even up to, I think it was Zandvoort and Monza, they still had a very competitive car and we're only a month and a half away from that now. So I don't know, I don't know really what's going on if the upgrades haven't worked or... There's a lack of motivation in the team, but yeah, they've sunk like an absolute stone. For a lot of the reporting I'm hearing is saying that it's been upgrades that just haven't worked. They've had upgrades come in and it's taken them down a pathway that just hasn't been useful. We've seen the Mercedes go for a sort of a new upgrade package and it's very much revolutionized that car. We've seen that performance, certainly with Hamilton, the way that he's been able to sort of click with it and that new sort of downdraft setup going through the side pods and into the floor, it works. Aston Martin just hasn't been able to figure out how to make it work. And they're going to be looking at something new for the AMR24, but equally they're going to have a little more wind tunnel time, but they're not going to have quite the same budget to do with anything. So we'll see what happens for them. Jacob, apparently their wind tunnel data, wasn't it, that has sent them down the wrong path? And it's not their wind tunnel that's up and running yet, is it? Who are they? Are they using the C? Who are they using? Is it Mercedes? Um, Mercedes or possibly Williams, because they're both around the corner from each other. It's unlikely they're going to be going to Red Bull for it. But yeah, it's it's not great for Aston Martin. Jacob, I'm going to go to you for your spinner. I've gone completely sort of left field to something completely different. I've not even chosen a driver. I've not chosen a team. And I've not really chosen a, a sort of personality within F1 either. I've gone for something that I saw at the end of the race, just scrolling through Twitter, as you do, sort of catching up on all the rumours and gossip and, you know, just scrolling before bed, really. And something that really upset me in a way, you know, is 
two fighting fans, or I think it was a group of fighting fans who happened to be Checo fans, who were sort of launching a, a physical tirade on what appeared to be a Ferrari fan. Now, this is something that wouldn't be out of place at a 1980s football game. I have a season ticket to my local football club, and although football has that reputation, I haven't seen behaviour like that this season. So, yeah, very worrying. And motorsport for me was, even when I went to Spa last year, I don't know if you found it when you went to Monza as well, Jesse, but there was a real sense of community. You could sit next to someone. I wore my Ferrari gear. You know, I had a Mercedes fan next to me. And there were sort of Williams fans down in front. And when one driver sort of retired or crashed out, there was no there was no mocking, there was no jeering, that sort of thing. And, you know, when Hamilton, I think, crashed at Alonso and Spa, you know, there was no sort of, there was no hate on any of the particular fans. But I don't know whether it was maybe a bit of nationalism there for, because it was Mexico, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but that sort of behaviour really isn't acceptable, you know, anywhere really, certainly in sport. But... It's shame me that it's sort of that football mentality sort of creeped its way into F1, which I don't know if it's a Liberty Media sort of, um, not Liberty Media, sorry, Drive Survive thing since then. I don't know, but I think F1 have come out, Liberty themselves have come out and said, you know, if it happens again, or certainly those fans anywhere will be given a life ban, which is, you know, the minimum I think that should happen mm. there. I think with this one, I, the reports I'd seen were it was a group of Checo fans that had sort of beset upon a Ferrari fan. They obviously saw that Charles Leclerc was the one to bear the brunt of the the fault when it came to that lap one turn one incident, and wrongly so as well. Checo did sort of hold his hands up and go, "It was a racing incident," which I think is the most partisan line he could have drawn at that point in time. Um, but equally. Yeah, it's behaviour that's not becoming of the sport. It's behaviour that I've not seen a, a race weekend that I've attended. Any of the Silverstones, didn't see it in Abu Dhabi and didn't see it in Italy. Even when Ferrari was having a torrid time in Italy, you didn't see the Ferrari fans really sort of setting on the Red Bull guys. There were words thrown around and clearly there was an atmosphere, but it, it never got to fisticuffs. There was still a respect between people and that was good to see. It didn't happen on the streets outside afterwards. It didn't happen... In when you sort of storm the track afterwards, it there was always a level of respect. So I think this possibly this comes down to the added pressure and the, the sort of storyline that's running with Checo at the moment of fighting for his career and fighting for second in the championship, coupled with the nationalism, coupled with a guy who's had a pretty torrid season taking him out for in that instance before you've seen replays or before you've seen it from different angles for seemingly taking out the guy for no reason at his home race. I can understand why Red Bull and Checo fans would have been upset, but I certainly don't condone their reaction to it. I think that was beyond out of proportion. It was simply unacceptable and that they have been, as far as I'm aware, handed um, lifetime bans uh, from the circuit. I don't think this was, this was, don't think this was instigated by the Ferrari fans. It was simply a group of Red Bull fans attacking one guy in a Ferrari top. It was bang out of order, really. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it wasn't even that turn one incident wasn't even Leclerc's fault. Where was he meant to go? He was sandwiched and, you know, Max took the racing line. He couldn't have been any tighter into turn one if he tried. Leclerc, obviously, like I just said, sandwiched in the middle of them. Checo turned in too early. But even if it was, well, if you were a racing fan, you would see that on the TV screen and know that wasn't Leclerc's fault. But even if it was Leclerc's fault, that kind of violence should never be condoned. Yeah, it's just out of the ordinary, really. Timo, we'll move on to you for your spinner because I've, I've 
got some points that probably go against it. So I'll let you open up with your your opening barrage. Surprised at all of that one, but for me, it's kind of the opposite for Lando Norris in terms of you said that uh, he's your winner, and rightly so. In terms of Yuki, he did the reverse of Lando weekend wise. He had a great weekend until the race, and the race is the thing that ultimately matters at the end of the day. And sure, he was going pretty decently early doors, but he spins for me because if he'd just been a bit more patient, I think a little bit like Lando had been on Russell and other drivers have been on, on other drivers. I mean, it was quite a while before Ocon actually managed to pounce on Hulkenberg, despite saying, I'm coming to get you. He still waited and got past him, whereas I think Yuki just, he ruined his own race a bit there and tried a bit too soon in a move that wasn't really going to work. And the potential points for the team there was quite good. And come the end of the year, it could be a bit costly for them and could mean the difference between finishing head of or behind Williams, which considering where they've been up to now in the season, it would be a shame if that's how they, they lost out on that. It's, I mean, um, it's coming from the back anyway after a horrid weekend that was not his fault and he had like he played the perfect team game as we were talking about earlier in qualifying and he kind of I know that you're never going to be completely happy where you were where you are and just make do with it but he had already gained quite a bit or been considered and would have been able to collect some strong points from where he was so this far into his F1 career for him to make a silly mistake like that, and then the hot-headedness on the team radio that used to be funny and just comes across as a bit immature now is is probably really for me why he's not going to make it to Red Bull. And it was a shame because we saw probably their best performance of the year so far, and we're running out of opportunities for them to to stay up with that. And I think that's uh, it's, it's a shame because he has moments of goodness, but this wasn't it. And it was kind of all down to him. See, for me, well, one, AlphaTauri are 12 points off of Williams at the moment. So they're going to need to do something fairly impressive to try and catch and pass Williams. Bear in mind that Albon is on a pretty good streak at the moment of just simply bagging a few little points here and there. But they are, crucially, the only reason they're ahead of Alfa Romeo is because of the ranking that Danny Rick scored in the race in Mexico. His they're tied on points, but on countback, Daniel Ricciardo's PU6 now has sort of earned them a higher position than Alfa, Alfa Romeo. So they're, the real battle is going to be who comes out on top between the two 16-point holding teams. And equally, Haas is only four points behind them. As unlikely as it is they're going to score points, there is still a threat of the undercut from Haas towards the end of the season. It only takes one slightly bonkers Las Vegas Grand Prix for Haas to somehow pull it out of the bag and jump both Alpha Tauris, Alpha Romeo and Alpha Tauri rather. But I think exactly the point why it's disappointing that Yuki kind of it's disappointing threw it away a Yuki threw it away. But ultimately, his race pace was good. His race up to that point had been fantastic up until which is great, but point. it doesn't matter. To be honest, if you can't get to the end of the race and get in the points, it's you can be perfect, but if you can't get over the, the the finish line at the end, then it doesn't matter how good you were, you've not been able to bring home the bacon. It's kind that's... of the perfect thing with Hockenberg earlier. You can be in the points for a really long time, but then you fall down the road towards the end, it doesn't really mean anything. I think it it's quite a broad stroke you're using there. That's very much treating an ingrown fingernail by cutting off the entire arm. I think it's He'd had a fairly good weekend. He had proven that he can run the team game in qualifying and proven that he was running fast enough to play the important team game in qualifying to give Danny the toe to get him where initially we didn't really think that car had any right to be. And yeah, had it not been for that rash move on Piastri, it would have been a stellar weekend. It wasn't, but it's certainly worth mentioning him and certainly giving him some praise where it's due. Ultimately, I'm not praising him for crashing into Piastri, but I think there is certainly credit where it is due for the guy for having 
a solid weekend and equally a good recovery after that contact as well. He did start scrambling his way back through the sort of ranking and came home with a relatively mediocre finish. It could have been better. I'm not lying there, but it was ultimately a good one compared to where he started from. I think there's a few other drivers. It's also interesting though, that he, uh, that Ricardo has also managed in one race to get three quarters of the points that Yuki's managed to get all season, which is just an interesting little thing on that one as well. But that would be a different story had Yuki not had that contact with Piastri. So it's it's always a case of what if. So yeah. Equally, other drivers worth a mention. Piastri, I think it's worth recapping his race a little bit. It wasn't really a cracker of a weekend, but solid and certainly recuperating from a bad timeout in Austin and played the team game very well, sort of working with Lando and not holding him up as he came through. I think it's potentially a shift in the structure of the team or potentially a shift in the way the car is being designed at the moment that it's just not fitting Piastri or he's not used to the intensity of a calendar this long. Bear in mind, he came straight out of Formula 2, spent a year on the sidelines and has sort of jumped into this one. And it has been a big, intense calendar. And this is another double header. We're going into a triple header now. And we'll be interested to see how that plays out for Piastri. But so far, so good for him. And I think it's it's worth giving me a little nod there. And I the other... disagree on you saying that it wasn't a cracker. Okay, he was never fighting for a podium. But nevertheless, he had to defend on track almost throughout the entire race. And like Lando, some of his overtaking moves were brilliant. And in places where we hadn't seen much overtaking, like at turn four on Bottas. So, no, it's not the podium fighting positions that we've seen in previous races. But nonetheless, I still think it was actually quite a strong drive in that he was constantly having to really race. Mm. I think that's why I think well, I want to at least give him a little bit of a mention just so this sort of didn't go without notice because it, it was all right. Another driver who it was all right for was certainly Alex Albon because another points finish for Williams third in a row. It's a tidy little run for Alex and proving that that team is really starting to come together with some, some good decisions being made higher up. The design is really coming together. They're utilizing what they've got and are able to put together a decent race car. It might not always have the qualifying pace, but in Alex Albon's hands it's certainly got the race pace Which, I think Williams yeah. have had a fantastic season I think I think where they've come from last year I can't remember how many points they got but it certainly wasn't more than 10 and 2021 okay they had a different they had a good card there with Russell but certainly I do think that Williams are on the up now under their sort of new Doriton ownership Alex Albon has really turned sort of himself around after that really ten, um, tumultuous Red Bull sent me sort of doubt. I certainly doubted him anyway to see if he really had it in him. He certainly does. Um, he has carried the team slightly this year in terms of points, although Logan is getting up to speed now, I'd say. But um, I do think that a track, for example, like Las Vegas could be very good for them as well with the long straights there. So I would love for Williams to hang on to that seventh place. I think it'd be a good story for not only Williams, but the sport itself because they're such a historic name. And, you know, I, I'm becoming quite a bit of an Alex Albon fan, actually, after criticising all those years ago. So it's really good to see him in the points again. And yeah, a very good story, I'd say. Williams won two in Vegas. Yeah, I'd take that. Um, so Sergeant first, then Albon second. Who knows? <laughs> we can bring... Yeah, I mean, last year, Williams scored eight points all season long. And at the moment, as a team, they're currently on 28 points with the vast majority of those being scored by Alex Albon with 27, obviously one point to his name, Logan Sargent. But yeah, it's it's a good turnaround for Williams. And we like an underdog story. Anyway. But, so Sargent is now 21st in what should have been a 20 driver lineup. 
yeah, he's still ahead of Nick DeVries, though, so he's not doing too bad. Well, if he falls behind Nick DeVries, I will be worried. Yeah, if he if he somehow pulls that one off. Anyway, um, we're moving to our next section, which is a predictions review and not a very high-scoring weekend when it comes to our predictions. No points for anyone apart from Timo and Ellie May predicting a Verstappen win. So, yeah, that was... That we're was very a- proud of ourselves for that one, aren't we, Ellie May? We really pushed the boat out. Yeah, you'd think about that one. Mm-hmm. I was really. Well, as soon as Charles got pole, I knew it was a certainty. Yeah, <laughs> in the bag. Is it now ten Charles poles to Max win conversions? I think. I think it might be it's eleven. More and more depressing the longer it goes on for. Yeah, it, it's not a statistic that any Charles Leclerc fan is happy to have. Anyway, we'll move on from our predictions to something where at least I've been a lot more successful and our Fantasy F1 League, where in Mexico, I had the two highest scoring teams, go me, um, Beata Yamaha and Jaffa Cake Racing, topping the league on uh, the Mexico weekend with 291 points and 263 apiece. Uh, third place goes to Francisco Rhodes with 257 points. EMT Racing, just outside the top three on p4 and on the curbs edging it into the top 10 with a p9 overall though the standings i don't believe change alex h9 v2 5650 points francisco Rhodes 5501 points and alex h9 5418 emt racing meanwhile is in p8 mid beds racing p10 on the curbs p12 liam i love you p34 with 680 points so still all aboard the struggle bus for liam i love you don't know whose team that is but congratulations for them for sticking it out Jacob, have you been paying much attention to your fantasy teams this year or have you just sort of set them up and let them go? Um, I, do you know what? I've sort of put them to one side this year. I did focus on football fantasy last year. Actually, I won my local league for quite a bit of money and a nice Premier League trophy, but that's a different point from the day. So yeah, I've really not paid any attention to any of my F1 fantasy this year, that's for sure. Any other final points to chuck out there into the ether before we wrap up this, our review of the Mexican Grand Prix? Uh, not really anything more to say, but I would say if Mexico was to be removed from the calendar, I wouldn't be too upset. No, I like it for its history, but otherwise it's it's not produced a particularly exciting race for a little while. Jacob, have you got anything that you'd like to throw out ahead of the Brazilian Grand Prix? Any sort of, we'll give you one prediction, one sole prediction as to what's happening. Ooh, you've given me one. I mean, I can think of a few things that could happen. It is Brazil, after all, probably my favourite race of the season. I think it's my best, uh, my favourite track as well. Um, one thing that's going to happen there is, um, do you want it crazy, crazy, crazy? Or you do, you do like crazy predictions? Oh, we love crazy prediction. Go on. Max Verstappen's not going to win. I mean, that is technically mm. quite crazy for 2023. Yeah, no, that is that is up there as a prediction. We'll take that. So that's a perfect point to end on. Jacob Phillips suggesting that Max Verstappen will not win the Sao Paulo Grand Prix next weekend, or rather this weekend when this goes out. Um, that is all we have time for on this week's episode. Timo, where can the people find you? You can find me over on Is It Fast on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Panic Sorority, and Instagram, where there's a flurry of new content there each and every week. Fantastic. T- uh, Jacob, where can the people find you? You can find me on Twitter at JacobPhil18, down the pub for real, or on the Curbs pub chat, where me and Timo talk some fairly juicy topics in the world of F1, and we share a virtual pint. Lovely stuff. Ellie May, where can the people find you? You can find me over on our Instagram page, where I make the graphics, 
or on our TikTok account. My lights have just dimmed. Oh, a bulb's gone out. Oh, fantastic. Well, it's just about lasted the entire podcast. And I've been Jesse Billington. And if you want to find more of me, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok as at Jesse on cars. And um at Classic Car Weekly, where you can pick up the next issue, which will have a lead feature from me in it, pitting the Austin Allegro against the Volkswagen Golf Mark II. On that, yeah, uh, I was watching. Sorry, the cat's trying to attack my cable. Um, I was watching uh, Richard Hammond's workshop. I've just started it. Mm. Uh, I'm on the second episode. And guess what he was reading? Classic Car Weekly. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed that when I watched the series back for, to, before doing an interview with him. And I was like, hello, I recognise that. That's the events section from Classic Car Weekly. That's my work. Well, it probably wasn't my work because that was filmed before I started. But the point remains, I did ask him about it when I met him. I said, do you still read Classic Car Weekly? He goes, yeah, I pick it up every now and then. It's a good little paper. I'm like, champion. Anyway, that's a perfect point to end on. We'll be back with the preview for the Brazilian Grand Prix.